Redeemer, we're continuing in our series, Brothers and Sisters in Christ one, uh, for One Another. And today we're going to be working through James chapter 5. And a, a larger heading is Confessing Our Sin to and Praying for One Another. And you'll see that in our passage. This is James 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Uh, Paul Tripp tells a story of a couple, and the couple's name is uh, Betty and Brad. And Paul uh, knew them very, very well. Uh, he and Brad had served on committees in the church and a school together. They picnicked together with their families and had dinner in, in one another's homes. And then late one fall evening, Paul got a call from Brad saying, can we meet as soon as possible? And so Paul tells the story of getting dressed and meeting Brad at a diner. And he says that what I learned about Brad in one hour was more than I knew about him in years of our friendship. And Brad began to confess, I'm done. I've put up with her stuff for years. She abuses me verbally in front of our children. I can never satisfy her. She always complains. She's never happy with me or anything that I do. Once a month, she threatens to leave me. About a year ago, she was cooking dinner, and I could not help her with a project. She became so angry at me that she tossed pots and pan at me. I ducked, and it shattered our kitchen window. I rushed over, Paul, and I hit her. And we physically fought in the kitchen. And to be honest, we haven't been able to stop fighting since then. There are holes in our walls that come from our fighting. The bruises you've seen on me are not from uh, home projects gone bad. When Betty's been missing from church for weeks at a time, it's because she has bruises on her body. Paul goes on to say that it was hard for me to continue to listen to Brad, not because of what he was telling me, Rather, I wondered, how did I miss this? I've known this man for years. 
and I realized that I barely knew him at all. He goes on to say that I forgot that everyone's life is fraught with disappointment, struggle, suffering, sin, trials, and temptation. We all find the searching light of true friendship a bit intimidating, but God is calling us from being sealed envelopes to open letters. That's the, that, that's the, 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 the passage, or, or that's the sentence that I want us to think about. Paul says, I forgot that everyone's life is fraught with disappointment and struggle and suffering and sin and trials and temptation. Is that true? If so, what do we do? How do we live? How should we live in light of that statement there that all of our lives at any moment can be fraught with disappointment and struggle and suffering and sin and trials and temptation? How should that shape how we live, Redeemer? You know, I think James is tracking with what Paul Tripp just said. That I do think James has been teasing out this idea of struggle, of suffering, of sin, of trials, of temptation. So I want to look at this passage uh, under this first heading. And I want to communicate to you this, that the struggle is certain and the stakes are high. Now, we're landing in James 5, but I want to step back from James 5 and, and jog your memory, right? In James uh, 5, verses 7 through 12, James tells us to be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer, he waits uh, for the precious fruit of the earth. He, he is patient until he receives the early and late rains. And he says, you also be patient. Establish your heart. The Lord's coming is at hand. And he says, do not grumble against one another. And I think what James is saying, do not grumble against one another in the midst of our trials. And he says, rather, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets as an example. Look at the steadfastness of Job. The Lord has a purpose. He is compassionate and he's merciful. Or what about James chapter 1, verse 2? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. They're doing something. The testing of your faith is producing steadfastness. Or what about James chapter 1, verse 12? Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. James chapter 1, verses 13. 15 through 15. Remember, no one is tempted by God. Rather, we're tempted by our own desires and they lure us away. And these desires, when they conceive, they give birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. You see that? Trial, suffering, testing, temptation, tests. It's all over the book of James and it's in our passage. Verse, four, verse 13 he says, is any one of you suffering? There it is right there. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Verse 15, 
And if he has committed sins, he would be forgiven. Verse 16, someone is in need of healing. In other words, the way James is closing the book, he's continuing with the same theme, that our lives will be fraught with trials, temptation, suffering, sickness. And the question that I want to ask is this, what are the stakes? What's at stake here? Look at verses 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, why, why is that there? Like, why is that there? I think it's there because here's what James is doing. He's telling us that trials and suffering and disappointments and failures and temptations and sickness, that our lives will be fraught with that. But I think he puts these last two verses at the end of the letter to show us what can happen when these things are left unchecked. In other words, I think what he's saying is, look, left unchecked, our suffering, our sin, our sadness, our sickness, our trials, our temptations, left unchecked, they can do a, a, a mortal blow to the state of our souls. James has eternal death apart from Christ in mind. He seems to be saying that these things that we endure in this life, they can have eternal implications. You remember Lot, who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember what Peter says about him? That his righteous soul was tormented by what he saw and what he heard, that, that, that Peter calls it a trial. And you know how Lot's life goes and it plays out in Genesis, don't you? The Lord has to literally go in there and pull him out because his heart had gotten so attached to that place. And I think that's what James is trying to get us to see, that that is what enduring in this life can do. It can lure us away. It can lure us away. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Lord, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Shailen, one of my favorite poets, here's what he writes. Heavenly Father, in your word, you say we can build because of Jesus and the blood that he graciously spilled. Lord, I thank you for real, because my dad's always there. I can cast all my cares plus the weight that I feel. My situation is ill. I ain't asking to be making a meal, but is all my money for paying my bills? It gets crazier still. My soul's on dangerous hills. A target for the world, the flesh, and Satan is aiming to kill. I love that. Do you think of your life this way? That James and Peter, the psalmist, and Shalin are all saying the same thing. Left to ourselves, alone in our sickness and suffering and sin, and trials and temptation. 
that there's a risk. A risk of wandering from the truth. Now, I fully embrace the perseverance of the saints. I fully embrace that what God starts in his people, that he finishes. I fully embrace that Jesus will not lose any one of his sheep. But that doesn't mean from our vantage point that it will not feel like we're living life by thread. It does not mean that we might not wake up one day and find ourselves out there on the brink of destruction. I think that's what James is trying us to get us to see. That these things are certain and the stakes are high. Now here's my second point, which I want to put as a question before us. If this is true, then what type of people should we be? What type of people should we be? Redeemer, you'll notice that there is no James chapter 6. I mean, it goes straight from James 5, 19 and 20. I turn my Bible. You turn your Bible to the next page. You're in 1 Peter. Think about how James just ends his letter. Now, why end a letter that way? And, 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 and what's the relationship between verses 19 through 20, where he speaks of the danger of wandering from the truth? How is that related to verses 13 through 18? Here's what I think James is doing. He's actually showing us what trials can do left to ourselves and then that's how he drops the mic. He drops the book. He ends it that way, which means that there has to be a relationship between verses 13 through 18. And here's what I think it is. I think James is saying there's a real danger, but what precedes the danger? Those are things that we can do. That's the way to live so that if someone is wondering or if we find ourselves wondering that we can make our way or help someone make their way back to the truth, back into the fold. In other words, verses 13 through 18, they teach us how to live in such a way that we don't wonder, that we pursue those who are wondering. Now, when I say what type of people must we be, I have two different people in mind. On the one hand, I do have in mind those who are suffering, those who are in that season of, of trial and temptation and sickness and sadness and despair, I have them in mind, but I also have the saints who are proximate to those who are suffering. Now, going back to my opening story, here's what Paul Tripp writes about what was going through his mind as his friend confessed domestic violence 
at that dinner table. Here's what he writes. He says, as I sat at the table, I was grieved, not simply by what I had heard, but what I had allowed. The most personal and important parts of our lives fly under the radar of our typical relationships in the body of Christ. We live frenetically busy lives with activity-based friendships punctuated by brief conversations with one another. When we ask someone, how are you, the person asking doesn't really want to know, and the person answering doesn't really want to tell. And here's what he writes, we are co-conspirators in our casual relationships. We get tricked by the public personas. We forget that no marriage is perfect. We forget that no one does the right thing all the time. That's it right there. As Paul Tripp sat there reflecting on how in the world his friend could hide this, he wasn't just grieved by what his friend did. He was also grieved by what he had allowed by being casual and surfacy and superficial and serving on committees but never going deeper. Co-conspirators. And I think the way this flows in the passage that what James is doing, he's giving admonitions for those who are suffering and sick. So he's going to show us, what am I calling you to do if you find yourself in that place? And he also gives admonitions to the Christians who I think are proximate to the ones suffering. Now, I think what's happening here is that James is giving this progressive, uh, progressive prescription, right? He's saying, do this, and if this doesn't work, then do this, and if this doesn't work, then do this. Um, when I was in college, me and, and three of my friends went to Atlanta, um, and we were on our way back. It was late one Sunday night. I knew it was a Sunday night because I had a Monday morning class, and I missed the class, uh, but we were gone. We were gone for a weekend, and at, this was probably Sunday morning. Uh, I noticed that my radio was getting lower, uh, noticed that um, my car just wasn't driving right, and so I, I lifted the hood up and I checked the battery cables to kind of see if maybe my battery cables are loose, and, 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 and that seemed to work. Well, then when I got to my uncle's house and parked the car, I went back outside and it wouldn't crank. And so he says, hey, I think it's your battery. So we went to Walmart and we got a battery. We put the battery into the car and it crunk up. And I'm thinking, okay, all I needed was a battery, right? So then we got on the road to drive from Atlanta to Huntsville, Alabama. And halfway between Atlanta and Birmingham. Now, Birmingham is another 93 miles to Huntsville. But if you've been on that stretch of highway from Atlanta to Birmingham, it was like 1 a.m. And my car shut off completely. So we're on the side of the road. Our, my blinkers didn't even work. Thankfully, we had triple A. Someone came. Me and one of my friends got into the triple A tow truck. My other two friends had to get picked up by an, a, a, a trucker who was coming along and saw us. 
And together, the, the four of us in two different vehicles with two different drivers, with my car being towed, we were towed to a truck stop. And once we got to the truck stop, we realized that it was the alternator. And so then we had to hope and pray that somehow at this truck stop, someone can put an alternator in my car. And we ended up and they did it right. We made it back to campus. There was an alternator there. A mechanic was on deck and we got the car fixed. We made it back to Huntsville the next morning. But think about the progression. First, it was me checking my hood. That didn't fix it. Then it was me reaching out to an uncle who thought that maybe if we do this, it'll fix it. And that helped for a little while. But then ultimately, by the time we got back to Huntsville, two drivers, a tow truck, a mechanic. I mean, we, we had to have a lot of intervention to get back riding. I think that's kind of what James is doing. This, this is progressive. And so for the sufferer, right, for the person who is suffering, here are three things that I think James is saying to us in the passage. The first is found in verse 13. He says, are you suffering? He says, pray. Go to God. Fall on your knees before him. Cast your cares upon him. Not generically, but to bring a real expression of your soul to him. He's a big God. He can handle what you bring to him. He longs to hear you in humility and in truth and even in anger and frustration. You can't gross him out with your deepest confessions. You don't have to have polished English. You don't even have to have all the words correct. He's a good father who welcomes those who are suffering. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'm your good father. That's the first thing he's saying. Don't cover up. Don't, don't hide. Don't minimize. Just fall before me and come. But then it, it moves up a level. Sometimes it doesn't feel like our prayers work. Now, this isn't the only time we see this in Scripture. In 1 Peter 3, chapter 7, here's what Peter writes. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as a weaker vessel. She is a woman. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think what Peter is saying is husbands, like we can't treat our wives any kind of way and then assume that God is just attentive and in tune to our prayers. He, he says, no, right? The Christian husband may expect an effective prayer life while he lives with an understanding way with his wife, bestowing honor to her. And what, what, what we think God is doing there is interrupting our relationship with himself and directing us back to relationship with our bride. It's as if Peter is saying, husbands, you can't be unholy over here, treating her the way you want to treat her, doing what you want to do, and then think that you can get on your knees and your father is listening. He says, no, go get reconciled there 
there, then you come and you open up to me. Isn't that kind of what Jesus says? He says, if you are at, at making your uh, offering and you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, he says, leave your gift at the altar, go there and be reconciled, and then come back. In other words, I think James is saying it, Peter says it, and Jesus himself says it, that sometimes when we're trying to connect here vertically, there are some horizontal things that are in the way, and what God is calling us to do is to, look, stop pretending. Go get reconciled over there and then come back to me. That it reads from verse 16, that it reads as if this person has been hiding. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, There's a lack of confession coming from the person suffering, and there's a lack of praying coming from those who are proximate, and therefore this person, whoever this person is or people are, that that, that their souls are still afflicted. So James says, cry out. That's not working. Search our hearts. Is there something grievous there? Are we skipping over something there? And go and confess this and go and, and, and own this and go and, and be reconciled. And maybe it stops there. And then you get to the last point. Verse 14. He says, is anyone sick? James is vague here. We don't know what kind of sickness this is. It could be physical sickness. That, that's kind of what it seems in our passage But it could be a physical sickness that's not caused by sin, but living in a broken world. You've seen that in John 9. Jesus' disciples see a man blind, and they ask him, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? And Jesus says, no, you you got it all wrong here. Sin on their part has nothing to do with his blindness. But there are times in Scripture when unconfessed and unrepentant sin, that it does afflict us. David says it in Psalm 32, when I was silent, my bones wasted. I groaned all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. We see it uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. When he was prideful, the Lord sort of took him out of his right mind. And so notice verse 15, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In other words, I think what he's saying, hey, call the elders And maybe your sickness is tied to some sin. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. But maybe it is. And as you do this, as you confess this, as you own up to this, you'll be forgiven. Maybe this person has gone to the same sin over and over and over and over. And maybe they have rewired the brain. Maybe those hits of dopamine from risky behavior is demanding more risky behavior. And now 
it's kind of running its course and, 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 and they're there and, 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 and the sickness will not lift and the joy will not be restored and, and their soul is tormented or maybe it's the brokenness of living in this fallen world and, and cancer is sort of ravaging the body and there's a deep depression coming along with it. We don't know the details, but we do know that James commands this person that when you're in this place, call the elders of the church. Call us. You see those three postures? Cry out to God in prayer, confess sin, and call for the elders. That if we find ourselves suffering in this season that will not relent, James is telling us, do these things. Well, what about the saints who are proximate? I think he gives us three major things. One is be present, but be present and pray. When it says confess your sins to one another, the assumption there is that one, this is for everybody. This is for the body. That it means we at the, as a body at large should lend willing ears. It means we should journey with people and be present with people that we should be concerned and curious, that we should create margins in our schedules to grab coffee, to shoot emails, to sit with, to Zoom with. I mean, if someone is going to confess sin, then it means that we have to be within arm's reach. It means that we can't have a jam-packed calendar. It means that we can't be on our phones while someone wants to pursue us and, and lay these things out. It means that we have to be present and not just present to sit with people, but to actually go to the throne on their behalf and to lift them up to the Father. But that's a healthy, responsible way to do life in the body is presence and prayer. And then verse 14, I think there's this pursuit and prayer. Let him call forth the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, this has been one of the sweetest things about this role that I have here at Redeemer. I didn't do this when I was a campus pastor. But some of you who are watching me, you've reached out to me or to our staff or to our elders And you've asked the elders to pray. And I've invited you to a session meeting. Or we've gathered in your homes or in that office over there. And we have laid hands on you. And we have anointed you with oil in the name of the Lord. And we have seen God do powerful and amazing things. And this is where I think we I feel very charismatic, right? I, I, I mean, I've read this in the Bible and at one point I kind of questioned like, man, does that does God still want us to do that? Yes, I think he does. And we've seen it. I've, we, we've come to your house and your baby that was not supposed to make it here full term. They come. And you've told us about demonic spirits that you feel that that they're in your home assaulting and afflicting your family. And we've showed up and we've 
trained and we've anointed with oil. That, that, that there are people in this congregation who have been sick with illnesses that just go away, right? The Lord just kind of works through this means, through these means. There have been marriages on the brink that we've seen the Lord himself resurrect and bind and save. And the focus isn't on the oil. The verb in that passage is prayer, that as you pray, you do so with the oil, right? So the emphasis there is not on the oil. The emphasis is on the praying. As a matter of fact, praying is all over this passage. It's actually in every single verse. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. If you're sick, call the elders. Let them pray. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Confess your sins and pray for one another. And then he starts to unpack Elijah, who was a man of prayer. This is how we should live, Redeemer. If we're suffering, cry out. Confess. Call the elders. And if we're those proximate to people suffering, be willing to sit and listen and pray. And as elders of the church, we go, we show up. So here's the question that I want to put before us. Do you do this? If you're suffering, do you do this? Do you cry out that others might journey? Do you confess your sins? Do you call the elders? If you're proximate to those suffering, do you sit with people, journey with people, make time for people? Are we ready to listen, ready to go, ready to drop it all to go through the throne of God for one another? Who's in this body? Who's in your corner? Who is in this body do you know is in yours? In 2006, T-Mobile came out with something called My Faves. And back then, it was like groundbreaking. You could put five photos, and, and those photos would be attached with a phone number on your home screen on your phone. And back then, you could call those five people as much as you wanted now, everybody else, you had to pay a fee. But for those five people in your faves, it was unlimited conversation between the two. Who's in your faves? Who knows that if you call them at 2 a.m., that they'll answer? Who knows that they can call you? Now, on a practical level, this can't be everyone for everyone. So, so how will you sort of flush this out to know that, that as I journey through life and do life here at Redeemer, who am I in community with like that? It's a blessing. Now, my last point, how do we become this and mature in this? 
Again, when I say we, I'm talking about both those suffering. How do we grow in those three things and those proximate to those suffering? How do we grow into that? I think the first thing is just seeing what's at stake. Verses 19 through 20. They show us that eternity is in the balance. I think it starts with being formed by God's words that we can see this, right? It starts there. But how do those suffering grow into crying out, to confessing, to calling? How do we grow into that? I think you have to remember that your Jesus, he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. That you have to have eyes of faith that sees that he's working even in your trials to form your character, that your hope and all might be in him, that you have to see that, that there is nothing wrong with needing help, that there is nothing you can do or you have done that will push your Savior away, that Jesus says he's a bruised reed, that, that, that he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He is tender towards you, beloved. Do you know that you are far worse than you can imagine, and yet at the same time, you are more loved and accepted than you've ever dared hope. You got to remember that, that he invites you out of your trials, out of your sin, out of your temptations, out of your sufferings. And he says, just come to me. I'm meek and I'm lowly at heart and I will give you rest and I will heal you and I will forgive you and I will raise you up. Your savior longs to do this and he's done it on the cross. He stretched out his hands wide to show you his eternal love for you. Do you actually think that these momentary afflictions he will let get in the way and separate you from his love? He says, no, do not believe the lies of the enemy. He says, come. How do we, those proximate to those who are suffering, become a more present, pursuing, and prayerful people that we must see and we must believe that this is how Jesus treats us. He is present and he pursues us. And right now, Jesus is making intercession for the body of Christ. That's profound, but it's more than that. That as we grow into this, we are modeling the partnership between the living church and the living Jesus to pursue his wandering sheep. In Matthew 18, listen to what Jesus says. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go to search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it. So it is, so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that, he should, that, that one of these little ones should perish. Luke 15. What about John 6 where Jesus says, I will not lose any of my sheep. We start to see the sheep wonder in, in Matthew. And yet, 
we start to see that Jesus' heart is to go after the one who was wondering. Now, look at the word right there in verse 19. My brother, if anyone, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, that word for wondering in James 5 is the same word for going astray in Matthew 18. In other words, here's what I think James is doing. James is actually saying in Matthew 18, Jesus says he will leave the 99 and go after the one who is wondering. And when you get to James 5 verse 19, he says, if anyone wonders the same word from Matthew 18, and anyone among you and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think what James is saying is that the ministry of Jesus that pursues and goes after and redeems and covers and will not lose his people. How does Jesus do that now? I don't know about you, but I've never had the physical living resurrected Jesus come after me in his own flesh. But what I have had come after me are real people. People like some of you on the other side of this camera. And you, beloved, are the continuation of Jesus's ministry to go out and to redeem those who are wondering. Isn't that beautiful? that that's a part of our identity, that Jesus is sharing in this work of pursuing his sheep and he's using other people like you and me to do it. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's a motivation. And what makes us commit our people to prayer John Piper says, because through prayer, we commend our people to the powerful one, ensuring that God, as the limitless provider, gets supreme glory in the working. He goes on to describe prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against powers of darkness. He's given us to us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need. Prayer gives us, look at this, the significance of frontline forces. So he's, he's propping us up saying, hey, God is, is, is allowing us to partner with him in this great way. And it gives God the glory as the limitless provider. James talks about Elijah who prayed that it would not rain. And for three and a half years, there was no rain. Who prayed again, and then there was rain. And here is the, the, here's the, the focal point. Elijah himself did not stop the rain. Elijah himself did not make it rain. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, again, giving honor to God. 
And then and when he goes in 1 Kings 18, he falls on his face, his face between his knees, and he prays. And when he prays, his servant sees a little cloud, like a man's hand, rising from the sea. And then the heavens got dark, and then there was rain. Do you believe that? That as we use prayer as a walkie-talkie to go to the throne of God, that the hand of God rises and he actually goes and he reclaims sinners and we get the privilege of partnering with him we get the privilege and then he gets the power and the glory we pray and we put our people in the hands of God and he heals and he raises up and he gets glory and he restores Oh, that we would be people like this by the power of the gospel. Redeemer, there's one verse in here that I skipped over, and it's right there in verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Have you ever watched the person who was suffering? and wondering, walk back in this sanctuary and they've been restored. They praise, they shout, they adore him even more. May that be true for us. May we see people who are wondering restored back into the fold. And may we be here one day, Jesus, and we pray soon that we can see people restored and and singing your praises. May we become this by the power of the Spirit and the goodness of the gospel. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I commit this time to you. And pray that you will serve your people with your word. Grow us into this reality, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Redeemer, I'm going to pronounce the benediction from 2 Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God of our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them for every good work and every good word. So God help us. Amen.